0: But I was like, hey, this is a really unique opportunity to let people know that, you know, they're not alone and that people do struggle and that you can make mistakes, but you also can can come out on the other side. And I believe that like the secrecy alone was the biggest proponent of why I was staying sick. And so for me, by doing that public post, it was almost like a bubble popped, you know, and it was just
1: like that pressure was relieved. But because it's also a sense of accountability. I'm Doug Bopes, personal trainer, best selling author, and entrepreneur. I'm your host, Doug Bobst, and today's guest is Jason Waller. Jason is a popular reality TV personality and recovery advocate who is dedicated to raising awareness about substance abuse and mental health. In today's episode, Jason shares his personal journey with addiction and how his very public relapse a few years ago prompted him to make significant changes to maintain his sobriety. He talks about detoxing from drugs while his wife was giving birth to their first daughter and also offers advice for those with loved ones who struggle with addiction. Jason also discusses rebuilding his self-worth, how he has forgiven himself and rebuilt trust with others, and the self-destructive nature of addiction. Jason lives in Nashville, and we also discuss how he is managing his mental health following the horrific tragedy that occurred a few weeks ago. So let's get this conversation going and welcome Jason Waller to the Adversity Advantage podcast. Jason Waller, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, man. Grateful to be here. I'm excited to have you here. And I know for you and many people, it's been a very emotional week and you live in the Nashville area. And obviously a few days ago, there was a horrific, tragic situation with the school shooting. I want to talk about like the mental health side of things, because I know you're somebody that has struggled with addiction off and on throughout your life. I know you've been sober now for a few years, but you've also struggled with relapse. And I know that times like this can often trigger like relapse and people who struggle with addiction. So talk about how you're navigating a situation like this for the sake of your own mental health. It's very unfortunate to see what we're having to go through and just what the world is
0: is going through as a whole. My heart breaks for all the people that are impacted and having to deal with this. And, you know, as we talked before we got on here is just this really literally and figuratively hits too close to home, you know, having young kids and, being 15 miles uh, not even like 12 miles from the actual incident it pulls on you and it hurts your heart to see that's where people are but for me personally going through this when it comes to like my sobriety the last thing that i want to do is grab a drink honestly in this type of situation it's more of what can i do to make a difference and how can i make an impact and i think this is where i'm at with my recovery because for me in my recovery journey and sustaining sobriety I live by a rule that consistency and structure create safety. And that's something that I do on a daily basis to maintain my sobriety. So when incidences do come up, I don't get deviated from what's going on, whether the day is great or whether the day is horrible. But again, is from a mental health perspective. Yeah, this has been I texted you today just before we did this and I just said, man, I don't know that I'm in a, a place to be able to do this just because mentally and emotionally I am it was draining. This happened on a couple of days ago. And it's just even just from like, my sleep has been all out of whack, just staying up and just kind of seeing what's going on and how that's, you know, what's going on within the community and having friends that have go to that school and just how can we be supportive and just, you know, even how to navigate the conversation with our daughter, you know, she's five years old and obviously she's aware enough now to know what that means. And, you know, there was a shooter on campus and to have that conversation. So it really pulls on you you know, just drained, you know, it's just like exhausted. It's more because you're heartbroken and you're sad. And so I think for me is being able to set limitations and boundaries on what I am doing and what I'm not doing and being able to one, openly communicate and talk about this is I think a huge thing, just being able to come on here and just be open because I believe by expressing vulnerability, it creates humility. And you know, I wish I could say I'm, mean, you know, I'm all gung ho and ready to rock and roll. It's like, yeah, I want to get to that spot where we can instill and create change, but it's also having to go through the, the process that you have to go through. So, it's been interesting. But I think again, talking about it and going through the motions, I, you know, I see, I'm seeing my therapist. Obviously, after everything happened, I was like, I have the tools and the resources to know that I need to to connect. But I've also Limited my schedule from what it was just a few days ago, just to kind of take some time to be with my kids, be with my wife, be with my family and what's important. But again, is I've been doing this for so long, meaning like the recovery journey and just self-care process that I'm grateful that I have a lot of the tools and the resources to at least connect to, to try to help me walk through
1: these processes. Thanks for being vulnerable and, and sharing that. And as far as like difficulty, as far as like the you know, strain on your mental health, like where does this situation like this rank, given that you've gone through, you know, multiple like public relapses, you've been on celebrity rehab, you've been on in situations where you've been extremely vulnerable and had a lot of painful moments that not only impacted you from a personal perspective, but also your life was out there in the public. Like, how hard is navigating the situation compared to things in the past? it's a great question you know I think this is it's different due to the
0: effect that those situations that you've brought up before were specifically with myself where this is now not only me my wife and my kids and so I would say if I were to rank this I mean it's the sadness of this is definitely the highest like if I were to compare to going through those other times those were all obviously very You know those were hard trials and tribulations to walk through and those affected me in different ways and i also didn't have the tools to be equipped to walk through them like i do today so i don't really have like an exact answer with that you know they're different and i'm just in a different place than i used to be back then i was when i was navigating celebrity rehab or going through public relapses or whatever it may have been besides i think the latest one because i did have some sustainable recovery but you know 2010 and prior, I was still a kid. I was young. I still had a lot of growing up to do.
1: You know, being 23 versus 36 is a big difference. I would imagine the situation's different because there's a lot of uncertainty and things out of your control that are attached to this, right? Where in sobriety and recovery, a lot of stuff revolves around your control and your ability to make certain decisions and habits and control what you do on a day-to-day basis to keep you like away from certain things that could end up destroying your life. And so, the initial reason I wanted to talk to you with today was obviously about your journey through all this, and not just recovery, but, Being able to get back up on your feet after not only relapsing, but relapsing in a way that the world has kind of seen you in a public setting, you know, kind of fail. And a lot of people, when they relapse, it's hard for them to get back on their feet. And I just wanted to at least touch on this Nashville situation, given that I know it's been incredibly painful for you and other friends of mine who live in the area, and that you did, you know, talk about like how it has, you know, drained you emotionally. But I also thought this could be a great time to like kind of take a few minutes and just process it. And with that said, Like now you've had some sustained sobriety for a few years. Like you said, you're in a better place than you were earlier on in your recovery journey. What changes did you make this time around that you think have made this time so different for you?
0: You know, I think again is maturity has to to go into that willingness to be open and honest. I think those were the biggest things was the honesty of really diving into what was going on beyond just the substances. And, you know, for me... It's crazy. Through all the work that I've done, you know, I'm actually able to identify now how I struggled with addiction, you know, and or the signs of addiction or alcoholism way before I ever picked up a drink or a drug. And that was when I was a young kid, you know, 13, 14 years old you know, I struggled severely with OCD and that was something where I would actually obsessive compulsive disorder were at that age, you know, I'd wash my hands until they would bleed. And so I had this underlying mental health condition, but on the outside in life, you know, as I'd go to school and, and be a part of sports, I was always a very good athlete. I was always a popular kid at school. I was living a double life at that age, not really knowing how to navigate that. And that was a very, very interesting process as a kid because, you know, on the outside and being perceived as one thing but internally when i'm going home i see and view myself completely different than what is on the outside and i used to always say even later on in life i always had an overinflated ego with an underestimated sense of self-worth because i'd always base how i felt on what was projected about me but not internally i always struggle about how i'd feel or look you know when i was looking at myself in the mirror And so seeing that I struggled with depression, struggled with anxiety, struggled with obsessive compulsive disorders, you know, struggled with all those underlying issues and just being self, just very self deprecative of my, you know, just the way I viewed myself. Those were all those signs and symptoms, which led into my drinking. And I now doing the work that I've done, I can see all the things that I had struggled with going back. But then when I was introduced to alcohol, you know, let's say 14, 15, 16 years old, a lot of those symptoms were relieved. And so that's kind of like being able to look back at and see all the work that I've done. It's been pretty fascinating to see where I'm at today. And so I think the deep work that I've done accompanied with that, you know, that honesty, that willingness, that dedication, that commitment. And also, you know, I think for myself outside of those things is I've really instilled a purpose and a passion in my life. There's nothing more gratifying than giving back and not looking for anything in return. And that's something I really pride myself on. And how I stay sober is is through that service foundation fellowship in God are the core components of it. And I'm committed to it. And there's a lot more to lose. And, you know, it's, it's, again, is I'm not saying that I have the power over addiction by any means, it's a, it's a day-to-day process. And I'm pretty consistent with my routine, you know, my morning routine to my evening routine. And I think the evening routine for me is even one of the most important ones is, is after I go through my day, and after I finish, I do an inventory. And it's not only the things where I was wrong and where I need to make things right, you know, if I need to make amends or just notice where I could improve, but also giving myself grace and identifying the things that I did really well. Because I think everybody always focuses on the negative things as opposed to what are the things that you're doing good.
1: So giving yourself grace, but that allows me the opportunity to start the next day with a completely fresh slate. So you mentioned like when you were a teenager, you lived like this double life where you would appear one way in school and then come home and appear another way. Given that you have done so much work on yourself and talked to different mental health professionals and therapists, have you understood like why that happened? Actually, after
0: connecting with Dr. Amen, we may think I still got to do the test, but it may be associated with pandas. There was no underlying trauma that would have existed to this, but there is something that's actually associated with like strep throat that can actually trigger, you know, OCD. And I'm not a physician by any means to be able to talk on it, but my understanding is that could be something that had it, it triggered that because that was the other thing. Is if you looked at my life from the outside, I came from a very loving, caring, compassionate family. Grew up very fortunate, you know, parents who are still married today, which in Orange County that's a rarity itself. But had a very stable, structured household, loving brothers and sister. And, you know, I mean, our family is pre-genetically disposed to addiction. There's a, you know, a good percentage of them that do struggle with whether it's mental health and or addiction. I mean, even just looking at our genetic makeup, you know, being Cherokee German and Irish, that doesn't give us the best shot. But yeah, so I mean, I think this kind of looking at all those things and yeah.
1: So you mentioned that you tried alcohol at, as it 14, 15, 16 years old, and that you are also an, an athlete and always got a lot of attention. You were a popular kid. How did that all like interact with each other? And then like, how did you end up transitioning from that to going on reality TV? So basically the story of going onto reality television was
0: struggling with the underlying issues, the mental health stuff, and then experimenting with, you know, alcohol. I started to struggle a little bit in school to the point of where I actually had to go away to boarding school. I was out in Provo, Utah, did a, a wilderness program and then went to a to literally a boarding school, was out there for like three or four months, was able to manipulate my way to be able to get back. Like, ah, and it wasn't like I was taken in the middle of the night. I was, me and my parents, we all sat down and kind of agreed that it might be good to get out of Dodge, just attendance and things weren't going that well as a junior in high school. And, And so after I did that and I came back, again, you know, wasn't at that age, wasn't willing to surrender to that. I had struggled with addiction and stuff. I was just like, this is part of experimenting, part of growing up. All the while while still seeing you know therapists and psychologists through since i was like 13 or 14. and my parents did the best that they possibly could given what they were given and and the knowledge that we have or at that time for mental health and addiction and then so i just kept kind of going about what i was going and then when i was away at boarding school the show was actually i was told that it was being filmed in laguna and i was just kind of like didn't know what to think of it the first season was shot and when i came back, they had finished shooting and it was actually starting to air just shortly after I returned back home. And they after it did well, they were like, We need to do another season. We need, you know, need another person. And given my relationship with some of the cast and some of the other people that were associated with it, they're like, You gotta connect with Jason and just given my story and, and what I was really going through, they thought it would be perfect for television. And that's
1: where it all ended up starting. Man, so they wanted to put like your mess I guess just for everybody to see given what you were going through as a teenager they didn't but yeah I mean they didn't know what was going on I mean they basically the way they saw it is I was dating
0: a bunch of girls I liked to party and I was kind of like the guy's guy I mean they had they, it's not like I came in there I was like hey yeah so I struggle with OCD I you know I take medication <laughs> like no it was yeah, it was okay. based on because at that time dude I mean drinking and using at that time was very fun it wasn't like My addiction and my, the way I explained how that all went is like drinking and using was fun. It became a lifestyle and then it became a way of survival. And at that time when I was on there, definitely struggled with it for sure. But again, back in 2005, 2006, like you just look at what was out there. Obviously we were aware of what alcoholism and, and all those things were, but there was just not nearly the discussion or information around it and or just the signs and symptoms to look out for because it is, trust me, I think they, capitalized and took advantage of the situations I was in from a TV perspective. But from just uh, beyond that, like I said, I don't think they had this vendetta of like, how can we take it, you know, hurt this guy? I don't think there was any malicious intent behind it. It was,
1: I think all of us grew up with people that like to party more than others in school. So how did it go from if being something you did for fun to becoming a lifestyle and then eventually to something you needed to do for survival? It's a disease of addiction, my friend, it is primary, it is chronic, and it is progressive.
0: And that's just kind of the stages of what it is. It was something that was, I think, experimental is a the fun stages of it and a, you know, a time where you're just kind of discovering to a place where, you know, that middle ground is where you're kind of you're really starting to associate it with a lot of the things that you're doing, and then to the place where you cannot function
1: or go without a day without using it totally makes sense. As far as like the timeline from you being on the show, like what was the timeline like for you to where like things got really bad for you? We will get you back to this episode of the Adversity Advantage in just one second. But first I wanted to give a quick shout out to Paleo Valley. I have been a big fan of their products for a while now. And lately I have been addicted to their chocolate bone broth protein. It's decadent, tasty, and a great addition to my smoothie. You hear a lot about the many health benefits of bone broth and it's commonly referred to as a superfood. With that said, some people don't like the taste of bone broth or are confused about which to buy. Paleo Valley has solved this problem for you. Their bone broth protein is made with 100% grass-fed and finished bones that are free from pesticides or antibiotics and are slow simmered to extract as much collagen protein as possible. You can add it to smoothies like I do, or it makes a great addition to baked dishes, your coffee, or mix with hot water and a little pepper for a filling, collagen-loaded afternoon treat. So if you'd like to join me in drinking the bone broth protein from Paleo Valley, go to www.paleovalley.com, and when you enter in the code DOUG at checkout, you will get 15% off. Again, it's paleovalley.com, and when you enter in the code DOUG at checkout, you'll get 15% off. Now back to the show. Things started getting really bad probably when I was... God, man, it's been so long just
0: thinking back about all this. I mean, the, I really started struggling with addiction from like the ages of 18 to 23. So it was like right when the shows were starting to take place, but then it, it got really bad and ignited all the way until about 23 years old is when it got to the worst.
1: And so what role did like fame and being on television, how did that fuel your addiction? It just
0: added fuel to the fire. You know, I mean, at the end of the day, when you are 18, 19 years old, I think most people are, you know, just looking for fake IDs and trying to go out and party where for us is we were literally being paid to party, travel the world, and it just added feel the access and notoriety. I mean, you take somebody at that young age who's so impressionable and that clearly did not have my own validation within myself, you know, seeking it in the wrong
1: places, it, it continued to spiral. And so, yeah, it was a, a challenging time. Yeah, I can imagine. And I can imagine, like you said, being young and not really having the tools to cope or understand what all this is doing to you and not knowing how to deal with fame. It was just seemed like it was a, a recipe for a disaster. Yeah, it really was. It really was. Like when the show ended, mm-hmm. do you feel like that made things worse for you from an addiction side because you weren't having the notoriety and the external validation like you did? No, it was already it was way past that. I mean, I, I didn't even know... I mean, it was like
0: survival mode, man. That was not a part of the context. It was more because my addiction ended up taking me to, you know, not contemplation, but suicide. And it's like, basically when you're at that age and you, you know, are influenced through whether it's the media or or other avenues, you know, I had everything society says is amazing, whether it was money, notoriety, fame, all those things. It's like, once you have that, you're supposed to be, you know, in this, in this great position, mentally, emotionally, physically, spiritually. And, that wasn't the case. You know, it was the most lonely, isolating place you could be. I mean, a person that grew up that was super active, loved being outdoors, always surfed, always skateboarded, snowboarded, played baseball, football, you name it, and would do that as a part of my just my life because it was what I enjoyed to the place of being in your own you know, your own house or your own apartment by yourself. And in this, this, this state of why am I still living? It's a very lonely place that it takes you. I mean, I even have parties at my house where I'd still be in my own room by myself, where there'd be a party going on out in the the living room and the the kitchen and all that stuff. And it
1: it just, it's a very isolating, isolating place. Definitely. I mean, I can definitely relate to that. And I think a lot of people who have never struggled with addiction, they have a hard time understanding why somebody with so much going for them would just, destroy their lives. Talk a bit about from your understanding of addiction and also your own experience. Explain to somebody who hasn't struggled to addiction, like why that might happen. Well, addiction is,
0: <laughs> look, it is cunning, and baffling and powerful. It's not like I woke up and I'm like, I can't wait to destroy my life today. You know, and I don't believe there's such thing as recreational use of heroin, of meth or drinking a fifth of vodka on a daily basis. So like when you're when you're looking at that at the end of the day it's for myself it was just i was so uncomfortable in my own skin is what it comes down to and and again is money and notoriety there's only so much that does for you and for me it didn't bring internal happiness and it wasn't until i was able to get real and honest with myself develop a really a strong relationship with god and you know really take ownership for what i needed to take ownership for wasn't able to get onto a, a journey of recovery and I tell people that, that don't struggle with addiction or alcoholism. I try to come up with an analogy that would make the most sense to people. And I I think this resonates with a lot of people that I've talked to. It's like when you, you know, if you're young or if you're old and you are, you are working out to the point of where you're just completely exhausted. I always put myself, I remember the time when I was on a soccer field, I was nine years old and you're just running back and forth in the dire heat and you're just dying of thirst. Think of that thought process of that dying for thirst is associated with somebody with addiction like all you're thinking of is i need water i need water that's how it is with somebody that struggles with addiction when they're in that it's like almost like a tunnel vision And it's like, even though you know, because there'd be times in my life where I'd be literally sitting crying saying, I don't want to be doing this anymore as I'm drinking. And it's almost like a survival gene. But I try to relate that to people that don't struggle with addiction. So they can kind of grasp onto something that they can relate to, whether it's even a hunger sensation or when it's you have to use the restroom, like when it's that's all you can think about. That's what it's like when you're in the depths of active addiction. It's literally this one thought. And that's where I relate it to that survival gene. And I think people can finally go, oh my God, like I never thought of it that way. Our frontal cortex, which is our executive operating system, which helps us make decisions daily when we're under the influence to the capacity that we are, that thing's completely shot. And we don't, we literally lose the right to make our
1: own decisions. A lot of people listen to the show who have loved ones or know people that struggle with addiction. And I get often asked a lot, like how to deal with that. And I want to hear your perspective, because I know Ashley has been very supportive in your journey and you guys are still together through everything. From your perspective, what are some things that she did on her end that really helped you? Stay on the path to recovery that's a great one a very,
0: very important topic to discuss because wherever there's an alcoholic or an addict, there's a codependent and sometimes they're just as sick, if not sicker and it is imperative for the loved ones that are dealing with somebody that struggles with addiction and or even mental health to get educated to get knowledgeable around what that person is going through. But Ashley really took the steps to work on herself. She ended up getting, you know, a therapist. She ended up getting and plugging into Al-Anon and working her own program. She needed to understand that what was going on. She didn't cause it. She didn't, you know, and she's not going to be able to cure it. But what she could do is she could influence change by her own actions. And that was one of the most imperative things was setting healthy boundaries, being there and being supportive, loving and compassionate, but also, you know, letting me know that I was not going to be she was not going to tolerate the behaviors anymore. And she's like, hey, if you're willing to do what you need to do to better yourself, I'm here to support you and I have your back. But if you're not, I'm not going to watch you slowly commit suicide. It's just something that I'm not going to be a part of that process because, she was throwing pillows where pillows shouldn't have been thrown. And it was an on and off thing when I had that relapse after five years of sobriety that, you know, with her, because when she met me and when we got together and we got, when I, we got married, all she knew was sober Jason. And so when I relapsed, everything went off the rails and she didn't have the tools or the resources to be able to process that. And so going back into active addiction, I was able to, you know, manipulate the situation. I was able to get her where I wanted her in regards to the addictive state And it was until that she finally got help and seek guidance and direction herself that she was able to not only help herself, but ultimately help me.
1: Was there ever a point where she was fed up with you and she was ready to leave?
0: It got to the point at the end for people that don't know. I mean, this relapse actually landed me where I was at the first floor at Hogue hospital in detox while Ashley was on the third floor giving birth to our daughter, Delilah. So it was a very, very gnarly situation, but that point that led up to that, And I wish I could say after I left detox, I ended up getting sober and everything was, you know, hunky dory, but I did not actively arrest the disease. I did not get stabilized. I went from detox up to the fourth floor. And then a week or two later, I was back out at it again. And then, you know, four or five months down the road, now that we have a child in this picture and, and that's where she was really, you know, losing herself. She finally got open and honest and she reached out to my family. She reached out to, you know, my sponsor, she reached out to mentors in my life and, I ended up coming home one day and I was intervened on. And again, it's just that simple conversation of, of reaching out and having the support there for her ultimately. Because again, she was at a loss. She didn't know what to do. Um, so she brought in people that could help and be supportive in that area. And, and an intervention was put together. And that was where things finally
1: shifted and they finally changed. Before we talk about those years of shame that I've heard you talk about, where you were hiding this from a lot of people after you initially had relapsed, what was sober Jason like compared to the Jason in active addiction? I mean, obviously, take the drugs and the alcohol and stuff out of it. Like, what were your behaviors like? How did you treat other people? What was the day to day like for you? Yeah, man. I mean, you know,
0: sober Jason is loving, he's caring, he's compassionate, he's accountable, you know, he, he's fun, he's outgoing, enjoys life, lives it to the fullest. Whereas Jason under the influence is irritable, restless, discontent, angry. Depressed, uncomfortable, not present, not accountable, a liar—you
1: know, manipulative. Basically, it's the opposite of one another. Yeah, it makes sense, and you hear this a lot, right? Because a lot of people they're like, "Well, how do I know if somebody's like addicted or if they've relapsed?" And it's like those are some of the telltale signs that you just mentioned when people are inconsistent, they're irritable, their behaviors change, they're isolation, isolation, right? Constantly angry at the world and stuff like that as well. It's going back to. The last public relapse, I remember the post that you made. I remember you making a post that was like, you know, I'm Jason Waller and I'm like 30 days sober or something like that, where you would announce like what had happened. Talk about like when this last relapse started, how you were feeling throughout the process. And then like, talk about like all the way up until you make that post and how that all made you feel. So-
0: For people that are not in recovery, like I'd stated before, like for me, the consistency and structure creates safety and having a program and a routine in place is is what ultimately got me that five years of sobriety. It was doing a program. It's a thing that I have to do on a daily basis. I mean, I wake up, I do a morning meditation. I do a prayer, I do a gratitude list. I exercise. It's a big thing for me. I mean, your brain produces more potent chemicals than heroin. You just have to let it work. And so like I have these routines and things that I, I need to do, going to meetings, meeting with my therapist. So it's like a daily thing that I have to make maintained for my sobriety and I was able to achieve a really beautiful life from July 23rd 2010 until you know almost 5 years later but ultimately I started to get deviated from life uh, I got sidetracked from work from money started gambling started to do all these things that were not a part of necessarily my program and I didn't put my program first and You know, looking back, I can see where it slowly started to trickle away, you know, even my relationship with God, going to church, all the things that are very important to my life and my sobriety just started to slowly come off because they started to get filled with things that I thought were more important, which in reality obviously weren't. And so I came out and that's like, we're burnout and, you know, trying to find balance and all those things are really important, but, and I didn't talk about it, you know, I thought I could deal with it on my own. And, and, you know, it it was just, I started to go back into those addictive behaviors because look, drinking and drugging was the solution, right? I mean, those, if it was just as simple as removing those and we're in a great place, that's fantastic. But it was the mental well being that I needed to take care of that I was not taking care of. And so that led me ultimately after gambling and, you know, going down that whole road, I thought, and that led me to seeing my doctor, which, you know, is another part of this, who has known me for years. And I met with him. And as opposed to doing the things that I know I needed to do, I'm like, hey, man, like life is really crazy. Things are getting busy. And I was diagnosed very young with ADD. And he's like, Hey, let's put you back on Adderall. And this was with actually no intent of wanting to abuse it or go down that road. And obviously knowing what I know now, like taking pharmaceutical synthetic grade meth is probably not going to be the best thing for somebody that struggled with cocaine use. But back then after again, identifying all the things that I know I needed to do, but didn't do, you know, saw a psychiatrist and it was just kind of explaining my life And what was going on he thought it'd be best that i got put on this and i I don't blame him i take ownership and accountability for myself because i could have talked about what was going on and what happened after taking the first you know week or two or supply but you know just a few months later it's like i always tell people i got prescription dyslexia as opposed to taking one every four hours i was taking four every one hours and it was just off to the races man i ended up relapsing on adderall and down this very slippery slope
1: on and off for multiple years Dang, man. Um, Thanks for sharing that. I can't imagine how painful that must have been because you were like a face of recovery, right? Didn't you get an award when you weren't even really technically sober for as long as you had said? Yeah, I was actually, I got the
0: Faces and Voices of Recovery Award out in Washington, D.C. And they thought I had eight years of sobriety and I was just coming up on like 30 days again. It was a really shitty place to be a lot of amends that (laughs) needed to be made. And I mean, obviously, those types of things like in those moments were very, very debilitating, very shame oriented, very, you know, just, it was horrible. But also, I have to I believe all great change proceeds through chaos. And those are there's a lot of learning opportunities, a lot of learning lessons through that.
1: So during those few years, during the initial a couple years, I should say of you doing this, did anybody else know besides yourself and who you were getting this stuff from? Ashley knew probably four to five months down the road, but outside of that, man, that was
0: what the scariest thing was, is the person that I used to be when I drank and used it. prior to all that. was like, I would get arrested. I mean, it was very public. Like now I was able to hide this from every, I was working with doctors, ASAM certified doctors. I was working with psychiatrists, therapists. I think now they can all see like, oh my God, it all made sense. But I was able to hide it well enough where it wasn't something that was coming up because it was almost like I'd be able to put on a front when I'd go out in public. But then when I would come home, it would just all fall apart. And that was where the scariest thing was, is I was able to do it as long as I was. I mean, that's, and trust me, it's not like I'm not at the stage where I'm having fun, you know, a party at my
1: house. It's like I'm using by myself. Like, it's not a a fun place to be. You mentioned Delilah being born and that was like the moment where like Ashley, like, reached this point with you. Was that like your, I would say, like, latest rock bottom, or did it something happen before or after that?
0: No, that was. I mean, it was kind of that was the real moment, if I look at like the rock bottom, but it was also at a place for her, you know, because she even thought this is how sick her codependency was. She thought, like, inactive addiction, like, if we have a kid, that will change Jason, right? That was just not having the appropriate skills and the tools to do that. But, because after that, that was a big part of the process. Like, dude, you have a daughter now, like you, it's not even about you anymore. You need to be able to be present for her and be there. And so that kind of all came together because again, as ultimately when I was in detox, I needed to stay in detox and I needed to go through a program, but also I was able to, my daughter was just born. I needed to be there for her, you know, even though I was taking 300 milligrams of Adderall a day and, and drinking a fifth of vodka, it's like, that's where the denial comes into play and you know, what needed to be important. but it played out how it played out, man. And, you know, I'm sitting here today and I can look you in the eyes and say, I'm a really good dad. I'm a really good husband. I'm very present in all
1: my kids' lives and I'm comfortable in my own skin today. Congrats, man. It's awesome that you've been able to turn everything around and do what you're doing. And I'm interested to know like, you mentioned that one of the things that kind of helps people get sober while you also have to work on yourself is that now you have a kid and it's like, not, it's not just about you anymore. Now you have a daughter. What was that, in, those initial few months of sobriety like for you, where now you're a new dad, but you're also like, have a lot of work to do on yourself? Like, how did that all work out? The end of the day, at that time, it was hard. It was challenging
0: having a daughter and wanting to be a dad that was there and could be a part of that whole process. But I knew, again, as having sobriety before, I mean, if I don't have my sobriety, I have nothing. And so I had to put that as a priority. So I ended up going back into treatment. I ended up doing the aftercare component. I ended up really inserting myself within the therapy, ended up going, you know, re-going back through the steps. And I had to do the deep dive in the work that I needed to do. And again, as I communicated that, and I had a very supportive wife and I had a very supportive family and I had, you know, support in all areas from friends, family, and mentors that were, you know, wanting to really help me to get through that. And so at the end of the day, as I had to put my God and my sobriety as my number one priority or nothing else was going to come to fruition. And that's what I did. And that's what I had to do. And that's, again, as that's what I continue to do, you know, what I did back then is each day is it's just a day. And it's again, as I don't deviate from that, because just because I'm, you know, have years of sobriety now, it doesn't mean I have power over my addiction. That's something that is constantly in my head that's doing its pushups, as we've heard, you know, just from other people, and just waiting for me to to deviate again. And so it's why I just I take it one day at a time, and I do what I need to do to maintain my
1: recovery. You just got to keep mastering the basics, right? And just take it day by day and just focus on getting better each and every day. I want to talk about this social media post, because when I remember when you made that post, I was putting myself in your shoes and I'm just like, I can only imagine how I know it was freeing for you, but how hard it must have also been too, given that you said you received this award, you were doing recovery work. Like not a lot of people knew what was really going on behind closed doors. Talk about that experience of like putting that out there that you had been like living this lie, but you've also taken a step in the right direction. Like, what were all the emotions involved with that? Well, I mean, like at the end of the day, man, and I say
0: that all the time, I got to stop saying at the end of the day, but <laughs> uh For me, when I was going through that process, it was also like when I was doing what I was doing, this is not justification, but I was literally dying trying to help people, right? It's like, I'm doing everything I can to support this individual, whether they needed a scholarship, whether they needed to get into treatment, whatever it was, I was doing those things. This is kind of how my heart is. And I think, you know, the people that know me today is, I'm a very giving person. That's just how it is and how I'm operating, how I'm wired. But when in reality is I needed to help myself. And so that was a very debilitating process within itself, but once I was able to kind of grab a hold of that and, you know, say like, look, dude, like you need to get help and be able to come out. Like obviously it was a very, it was very embarrassing. There was, again, a lot of shame. There was, you know, stigma associated with it. But once I got the courage to be able to do that, I wasn't even advised that I do that. Basically all I needed to do is let one person know it was which was directed to me and, you know, and go about what I need to do. But I was like, hey, this is a really unique opportunity to let people know that, you know, they're not alone and that people do struggle and that you can make mistakes, but you also can can come out on the other side. And I believe that like the secrecy alone was the biggest proponent of why I was staying sick. And so for me by doing that public post, it was almost like a bubble popped, you know, and it was just like that pressure was relieved. But cause it's also a sense of accountability. And it's interesting, you know, having or being in the position that I'm in to have, you know, some public notoriety it helps with accountability. And I think there's also, there's a lot of people that follow the stuff that I do that look up to that. And I don't want to be a, you know, I don't want to be a fake. I want to be real and authentic and transparent. And when I came out and I shared about that, there was a lot of people that I didn't expect that came out and shared similar experiences or were going through something similar. And so that, you know, it wasn't necessarily the intent, but when I did it, it really helped a lot of other people too. But I mean, ultimately it was for myself and just to kind of
1: have that clean slate. Yeah. That's beautiful, man. And like, you know, like vulnerability creates this massive bridge to connection, right? We hear that a lot in recovery. And I think when you make a post like that, you're not only being vulnerable and holding yourself accountable, but you're creating this bridge for other people to kind of reach out and And talk about how they've struggled with the same thing. And it seems like a lot of your identity and and self-worth throughout the years before was fueled by addiction, external validation, fame, and that sort of thing. What have you done over the last few years to like rebuild your self-worth, your self-confidence and your own image of yourself in a way that's healthy? Great question, man. You know,
0: so for me, exercise, outdoor activities, hobbies, are all very important to me i make sure on a daily basis that i'm at least outside whether that's golfing whether it's going to the gym whether it's even just taking a walk with the dog i always like to keep my body in motion and i like to be able to partake in those things but my relationship with god is huge not only do i attend church but i'm also a part of you know a weekly bible study i lead and conduct groups on a weekly basis you know i go to meetings i still do weekly therapy. You know, so I I have those things in there that are, are very important to me, but and that I need to do on a daily basis. But beyond that, too, is I'm involved in things that that motivate me every day when I wake up, that give me purpose, that give me passion. And whether that's being a part of a foundation that literally is looking for a cure for addiction. And I get to work with doctors and scientists from Harvard and Yale and Cedar Sinai, John Hopkins, and literally look at the research that's being done to combat the disease, all the way to working with people in the space. You know, I work with one of the first ever Jayco accredited at-home treatment providers. And so where we literally bring treatment into the comfort of somebody's home. And and I got a new position where like I'm working with Dr. Amon as the director of development for him. and, And we're looking at how can we change the way that people perceive mental health And how can we change the narrative on that? And, you know, get people to understand that, you know, we need to be looking at the organ that's directly impacted. And there's there's a lot more that can be done. And so I think it's all these really cool things that motivate me and inspire me and get me up in the day. And it's finding things that I can attach to and have that drive. And then, you know, outside of that, too, is my family. I mean, I got an amazing wife, I got an amazing daughter, I got an amazing son. And spending time with them is the most important And, you know, it's imperative that I set a good example to them Uh, again, as my kids are, you know, susceptible to this and, you know, actions speak a lot louder than words. And so that time that I have with them that I literally and figuratively and physically will get on my hands and knees to get to their level and just to be able to play. And those are, you know, the most rewarding moments that time with family, you know, I kind of live by a mantra that life is all about the love you have, the memories you create and the legacy you leave behind. And so trying to incorporate that. And I do a lot, you know, I'm busy. You know, I I have a project that I'm doing out here as well in Tennessee, where we're doing a a PSA. Nashville really came together where we have a lot of people in the entertainment business, sports world, a bunch of subject matter experts where we're coming out and we're, we have a a big PSA that's coming out. That's going to hopefully create community and connection and start a conversation around mental health and addiction. And so just trying to make a difference you know, is what it really comes down to. I don't have an ego in any of this stuff. I'm grateful to be alive. I'm grateful for all that God has given me. And I've had an incredible life. It's been very challenging at times, but I've also, I wouldn't take it back. I've been able to experience a lot. I've enjoyed the journey, you know, and the trials and tribulations have really shaped
1: who I am today. And all those setbacks gave me an opportunity to
0: have a comeback.
1: Absolutely, man. So well said. And I saw bits and pieces of the PSA. I saw you uh, did something with our mutual friend, uh, Mallory Irvin. She's incredible. She's incredible. Yeah, it's glad to see that you all are, are doing some stuff together. And you talked about like God, Christianity, like what you're doing now and that side of things. And I think like a close cousin or even like a brother or sister to that is forgiveness. And talk about the forgiveness journey with yourself and how you've been able to let go of a lot of your past mistakes and not let them hold you back. Yeah,
0: that's, uh, let's talk about a God shot right there. Because I've had asked like, what's one of the biggest things that I've learned in life? And the term I use is forgiveness, because that was very hard for a very long time. And I still am hard on myself today, where my wife is like, literally like, God, give yourself some grace, man. It was a process. There was a whole journey in forgiving myself. You know, that was, it was challenging. It really was, but it was the most freeing Experience once I really got to the core root of it, and was really able to have that literally that conversation with myself, as weird or as lame or as crazy as that may seem, but to to know that it was that it's okay, and to forgive myself, and you know, really learn from those things, because it's there's nothing wrong with making mistakes. That's part of life. I mean, life is literally problem solving. But it's with the mistakes that that have happened or the issues that you've faced. It's what you're doing with them. And once I really processed that and got into a a place of forgiveness, it created a sense of freedom. And it's it's the same thing at even a deeper level. Like, I mean, part of the process and my recovery journey is when you make amends and taking ownership and accountability and making things right for the, the wrongs that you've done, you know, when somebody forgives you of that and just what that does for you, it's powerful, it's moving. But when you really do it for yourself, it's that much deeper. And so forgiveness is huge and, that is translated now i used to be a person who used to hold on to a lot of things i still do i'm not perfect by any means but forgiveness is a huge thing of just how i operate now in a day-to-day operation of with people cuz look we're in a broken world man and there's a lot of you know i try not to have expectations around a lot of things and but when things go wrong is is forgiveness because it's a weight that you don't need to carry that
1: burden of resentment or anger or frustration if you can just forgive and let go it's just a much better way to live You talk about like being hard on yourself and letting go and forgiveness and how that being something that's been really powerful, like what's been the hardest thing for you to let go of? The hardest thing for me to let go of, I've let go of it, but
0: during that time or that process was the pain and harm that I had caused to my wife and to my family. That was, it was, it was, you know, cause you don't really realize it when you're in it. Until you can kind of get out, you kind of get a new pair of glasses, you can kind of see the whole process of what really took place and and the tornado that you'd caused and that you'd went through and the pain and the agony and that was really hard. You know, I just, again, that's part of the forgiving of self and the things that I'd gone through because you,
1: you really hurt the ones that you love the most. Absolutely. And so on the other side of that is this thing called trust. And I know a lot of times when people get into recovery, they expect the people who they've hurt to just immediately like forgive and trust them right away. And that's a hard balance, right? How did you navigate that process as far as like regaining trust with Ashley and your family? All too familiar with that. that, That was me in my earlier
0: sobriety since when I was 18, 19, 20 years old, just expect trust immediately. Look at me. I'm in treatment. I'm sober. Like, come on. But, as I've gotten older and I've gotten wiser, and I've gone through stuff, trust takes time, and it's less talking more doing, and my actions spoke louder than than my words, and I think as they you know it took months and months and months. I'm sure with some people it probably took a year. but I think also too, is like specifically with my wife, she got to see and know who I am before that crazy relapse happened, and she knows the type of person I am and where my heart is and, and what it is that I stand for and my morals and my values. And I think that kind of always, even she she'd say that, you know, herself is that's, that's how she, she knows that's who I am. And so she knows the person that was struggling with addiction was not that person.
1: Yeah. That's awesome, man. That's awesome that you were able to like have that, that awakening to where you went from being the person that just wanted that instant gratification to just knowing that, you needed to be able to put in the work and be consistent with your actions in order to like regain like the trust back. So we've talked about like, you know, working out, we've talked about what you do to to kind of maintain sobriety today, like how important are the people that you spend time with as far as like your mental health, your recovery and, and moving you forward in life? Yeah, I mean, you're a product of your environment, you know, I mean, who you surround yourself is who
0: you're gonna be. And so, I think it's a big part of the process. I mean, who I have in my life today are people that lift me up, that support myself and what it is that I'm doing and people that believe in me. And so it's having the right people around
1: you is is very important. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's so important because I think your environment creates a false sense of normalcy. And if you're around a bunch of people that are complaining or abusing substances or fill in the blank, you're going to end up thinking that's normal. So you're going to become that person, right? And it's like if you spend time with people that are trying to better themselves and exercising and moving forward in their life and being kind to others, and that's going to be normal and you're going to end up adapting to that. Yeah, 100%, man. So Jason, this has been awesome. I want to thank you for being so vulnerable and open and honest on the show, given, you know, even the circumstances of the last few days, I really appreciate you taking the time and coming on here. Where can people find out more about what you're doing? Where can people connect with you online if they're interested in doing so?
0: Yeah, if you uh, basically, it's either this, my name is jasonwaller.com is if you want to go to my website or jason waller on Instagram, I think those are kind of like the two main hubs of where you
1: can see most of what I have going on. Amazing. Well, I'll make sure to include the links to that stuff in the show notes. And for those listening, what I invite you to do is to share a takeaway. Jason shared a lot about his story between you know, what fueled his addiction between like reality TV. We talked about relapses. We talked about recovery. We talked about healing, forgiveness. We talked about so much. And what I invite you to do is to share a takeaway with the part that resonated with you the most. Tag Jason, tag myself, because we'd love to hear your feedback. And we once again thank you for listening to this episode of The Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst. We'll see you next time.